Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ons. Thanks so much for joining me. Coming up a bit later on, you'll hear my chat with style and beauty writer, creative consultant, and most importantly, my pal, Melissa Magsaysa, about her love for the 1979 film Quadrophenia, which was loosely based on the Who's album of the same name, TV cooking shows as a whole, but don't worry, we'll get into specifics, and artist Mark Bradford who is known for creating grid-like paintings, combining collage with paint, among other work. So Melissa did an excellent job of drawing connections between the art she loves and her life and career. So she gets a gold star on the guest chart. That's not a metaphor. I have an actual chart on my fridge, and I put gold stars on it when guests do a good job. That's how most people run their podcasts, right? Anyway, it was nice to chat with someone who so perfectly illustrates what this show is all about. And it really boils down to art is everywhere and it affects everyone. I think I've regaled you with the anecdote about my childhood math project before, but I'm too old to remember and too lazy to check. So here's a recap. My childhood math teacher asked us to talk to our parents about how they use math in their jobs. My dad told me that he used math to calculate his mileage for fuel reimbursement because he drove a lot for work. My point is, yes, there is a point. My point is that in the same way that math is everywhere and every person, every career, every thing, everything on this earth has some kind of link to mathematics, and I think that's also true of art. It's infused into it's infused into every aspect of our lives in some way. Sometimes we notice these things because they're obvious. You go to a gallery or a concert or a play and there's a pretty overt connection to art in your life. Duh, right? But the connections exist in small, nearly invisible ways, too. The signage on your favorite coffee shop. The music in the waiting room at your doctor's office. You're always being affected by art, even if you're not conscious of it. So Ms. Magsaysa going a step beyond and being cognizant of the obvious connections between the art that surrounds her and her profession makes me very happy. And if it wasn't totally obvious, that's what I've been trying to get at over the course of the last 45 episodes of this podcast. I want every person to feel as excited and passionate about art and the myriad ways it shapes our world as I am. So the more people I can talk to who share that enthusiasm, the easier it is for me to get that message out. In fact, I think all of my guests have done a great job at illustrating that point. So the real moral of the story is, great job, Adam. What a surprise twist that was at the end, right? You thought I was making a really profound point, but it was all just leading up to shameless self-congratulation. What a fucking twist. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Anyway, 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 enough. 
let's get to the good stuff, shall we? Here comes my chat with Melissa Magsaysay about Quadrophenia, Food TV, and Mark Bradford. So, maybe should we start with Quadrophenia? Do you remember seeing it for the first time, like roughly what age you were? The first time I saw Quadrophenia, I believe I was 15, Mm. definitely in high school, and the little group that I ran around with, which definitely wasn't the popular group, but we were like, I guess the artsy quote unquote kids, like kind of smart. I wasn't smart, but the other kids were smart. And I was just like hanging out with them. And we really adopted this whole like mod look and we're really into the whole mod, 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 everything and Morrissey. And so, you know, everyone started talking about Quadrophenia. I watched it at my friend Kristen's house and yeah, just visually, aesthetically, the style of um, how all the guys were dressed, the skinny ties to the the more casual look just resonated with me. I mean, I think I started to dress like that in high school, like the girl version. And I think that's just sort of like inspired this kind of way of thinking of style that's born out of subculture um, rather than just following trends. But having your clothes mean something more, obviously, we're all very tribal and, and we identify with different people for different reasons. And yeah, mods were just to me like a very attractive, it was a very attractive aesthetic certainly in high school. And yeah, that movie was just like an homage to that, that sartorial aesthetic. And today I still think it's, I should watch it again, actually. Maybe I'll do that. (laughs) Rainy weekend. Um, It's just like the epitome of cool. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Everybody looked really, really great. Yeah. And I felt exactly the same way as a teenager. It was seeing these young people who were so put together and have this unified vision of what they should all look like. Everyone has their kind of individual versions uh, that fit within that remit, but it's all like, yeah, you look at a picture of all of them together and it's like, yes, this all fits. They're all part of uh, a whole. A whole. And what I like to say um, is that style is more than what you wear, right? Style is about how you live. It's your, it's your, you know, a superficial, it's your car to your home, to, you know, the, the charities you're aligned with, how you give back, how you, you carry yourself. I mean, it's really everything. It's this really holistic thing. And mods to me embodied that. I mean, it was so particular, the way they would stand against a wall, the way their little Vespas looked, um, you know, how they'd all ride in a gang together. Yeah, their slump, their the tilt of their hat, the width of their tie, slang, all of that was just, it was very holistic in that way, like really thoughtful about, it was truly, it is truly a style in the way I just described it. It was not about a trend. You know, you could say the same thing about punks as well, but there is just obviously something more refined about mods that wasn't just solely about music, but just kind of this detail and being very much part of, I guess, a, a clique, like a tribe, you know? So yeah, I think that it, it kind of really encompasses for me how I like to think about fashion more holistically than just clothes yeah. sort of a social commentary of you know fashion should be indicative or is indicative of what's happening culturally at the time and sort of society's reaction to what's happening politically uh, economically all of that so 
again, I think the, the mod, the whole lifestyle, and of course the aesthetic just captures that for me. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, in Quadrophenia, mods and rockers are kind of uh, mm-hmm. presented as the mirror images of each other, polar opposites. But I think the comparison to punks is mm-hmm. uh, even further to the other extreme that it's like punks. The idea is that you don't care about or that you're projecting an image of not caring about how you look, that everything's just like about tearing things and piercing yeah. things and whatever. Yeah. But mm-hmm. of course, it's completely an illusion like they spent hours and hours and hours perfecting those wasn't yeah Yeah. it wasn't like something that was really thrown together and mods to me are the opposite of that where it's like having this very cultivated look that this the point is specifically to show how how much care you've taken Mm -hmm. um and really wanting people to pay attention to their style um as much you know as as part of a a broader subculture um which involved music and politics and class and um, all of those things totally totally and i think there's nothing wrong i mean there's this word that i'm super guilty of and everybody throws around in fashion is effortless effortless this and like french girl this and like like she just woke up and all that and like i love i get that but like i think that mods never like never they're so unapologetic like you know to your point about putting putting a lot of effort in and being super detail oriented and and being very specific about the choice of of literally everything that went along with their image i think that there's nothing wrong with that and you know we think today about like the no makeup makeup and like super effortless like carefree girl in a field and everybody that's like the goal but i don't know i like some effort i like yeah. I like plenty of effort. (laughs) And in the same way as with punks, that idea of effortlessness and, you know, oh, straight out, the the straight out of bed look or whatever, that's all cultivated too. Those people take hours to get ready. And they're, you know, it's about perfecting a look that expresses a certain point of view. And the point of view is I haven't done anything. I just woke up like this and it's not real. It's an illusion. Totally. And when people say, you know, oh, I don't care about fashion. I don't think about what I look like and whatever. I mean, like you do. Everybody does. Everybody Mm -hmm. does. Just some of it's more formalized. Like, you know what I mean? Like everybody's choices in the morning or what they're wearing or what even they're non they're when they don't pay attention, that says something like it just everything is everything can be seen as representative, of course, of your identity and, and you know, sort of what things what how things speak about who you are and, and what you care about. I mean, you know, when I would write stories about uh, like in an election year, well, like we're coming up upon, but and my editors would ask me to really try and look for like intersections of fashion and politics. It's like my immediate reaction would sort of be like grossed out because I'm like, oh, we don't have to make like Hillary Clinton's pantsuit like a thing, like how many more people could write about that, whatever. But like, you know, if done well, like you really, there is a lot there, like even in politics or business or whatever it is. I mean, the sort the sartorial side really is, it is relevant, you know, if, if done well and, and, you know, put in the broader context of culture. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And, you know, even people who say that they don't give a shit about fashion or they're not, they don't care how they look, mm-hmm. that is still a statement that means you know that somebody who just buys like 
20 of the same no fear sweatshirts and baggy dad <laughs> jeans and says they only want to wear those, that expresses something to people. And that is a look. That's um, a lot to me, actually. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> volumes about that person. Um, yeah. Correct. Correct. I mean, it's just the way we, you know, it's like consumer behavior. I have so many friends now that are like, I only buy secondhand because it's all about sustainability. And, you know, I mean, like we're making, I think more than ever in this current climate, we're making a statement with what we purchase, how we purchase, right? Like everything's so transparent. The companies you buy from, like I only buy fleeces from Patagonia because they are super ethical and, you know, they, they have a really big philanthropic arm and all that. Like everybody is more transparent about how they, uh, all the companies are more transparent about, you know, Everlane, you know, everything's ethically made. They treat their factories, their factory conditions are great and all that. So like consumers have the choice of uh, the power of, of their, their dollar. So it's like, you know, we're all making a statement, whether it's aesthetically or politically or financially. So like with fashion, you can be, you can do that now more than ever, which is a really great thing. Actually, it's not just about what you wear, but how you acquired that item that actually says more about you as well. Yeah. And also just the way that a fashion movement, uh, um, a youth subculture can, the, the echoes of it can be passed mm -hmm. along through generations. Like, you know, this is a movie about a 60s subculture mm -hmm. that was made in the late 70s and mm -hmm. was influencing teenagers in the 90s. And it's like when you have something that's so iconic and so instantly recognizable and it's combined with all of these other themes as well. And also for me, a big one was just being an Anglophile and thinking it was <laughs> cool that, you know, they're in, in Brighton and running around on Vespas and whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. It still totally resonates. I mean, I wish it actually resonate. I, I'd like to see it like pop up more, to be honest. Like I, mm -hmm. I'm friends with all these celebrity stylists and I interview them or whatever. And they have these sort of like, uh, like arcs for their, their, their clients or, you know, people who are doing an editorial shoot or whatever. And they obviously have all these references and like dirty dancing is a big reference or, um, obviously, you know, any given Audrey Hepburn movie, there's all these sort of like style movies in the canon that people go back to and I don't feel like Quadrophenia has brought up enough in that those conversations I would love someone like when I'm interviewing them to be like oh and then Quadrophenia and you know what I mean I'd be like yes a hundred thousand percent if I was a I'm just throwing this out there if I was a celebrity stylist or someone who styled men just styled people in general I would reference Quadrophenia all the time well, the campaign starts now. The campaign starts now. I challenge everyone out there to get on it. Yeah. I think yeah. Uh, you've thrown down the gauntlet. That that's yeah. uh, Everyone's had fair warning now. And, fair uh, warning. Yeah. Do it. Do it. <sighs> I'm sure right about you. Let's say that. No, yes. I don't. Yeah. Do a good job at it. That's a good incentive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, let me first watch Quadrophenia again this weekend and make sure I'm promoting something. Um wholesome and no it's not wholesome but the look is great let's just say that yeah and there are also you know that that is a problem that people run into a lot on uh this podcast is kind of 
thinking that they have these really wonderful romantic memories about something that (laughs) they thought was really cool. And it's either like totally terrible or really racist or, you know, something's wrong with it. I don't think that's the case with quadrophenia, but I know know. I was like, Um, let me just check for like racism, sexism. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's crazy. All the stuff we'll watch now. Um, or like I'll, I have a seven year old son and I'll show, we'll show him, you know, like, Honey, I shrunk the kids, or I don't know, something that seemed completely wonderfully wholesome when we were that age. And it's totally like, like, hashtag me too times a million. <laughs> no bueno with yeah. the treatment of women or the yeah, writing yeah. in the movie. I'm like, wow, this is horrible. But yeah, no, I think Quadrophenia were safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, to keep the brisk pace going, um, <laughs> should we talk a little bit about uh, food TV? From quadrophenia to food TV. The it's natural, just a natural progression. Yes. Natural definitely. progression. Um, yeah. I do not. I will preface this by saying I do not cook. I'm not, <laughs> I can't cook. I, it overwhelms me tremendously. Um, so... My obsession with food TV is not because I then go make the thing um, or I'm like, oh, I didn't know marjoram could be used that way. Like, or I I have no idea like about spices and things like that. But, and I'm not even particularly a foodie, um, you know, in the way that I see so many people in Los Angeles and New York who are foodies. So my obsession with food TV is that I just think it's always beautifully done. I love the documentary sort of style and the way it's shot. I love, of course, Anthony Bourdain. There's obviously that armchair travel element there. Chef's Table, Street Food is like my current favorite on Netflix because food is unifying. And it's obviously, it's about community. It brings people together. It's very democratic. A lot of different people can watch these shows and it could be talking about, you know, the most like Michelin star awarded restaurant in the world. But like, you know, the at home mom cook could still relate to it and find it aspirational and cool. And it's something I wish could be applied more to fashion. I think generally when we're talking about media, fashion is not democratic. It's not attainable for your average sort of at home viewer, but It is like kind of going back to what we talked about before. Everyone gets dressed in the morning. Every every choice you make or do not make about your clothing or your appearance does say something about you. So I do think it's very democratic. And, you know, my goal and what I just what I get excited about is talking about fashion, telling stories in a way that feels as close to a food show as I could possibly get, which to say is not very close, but um, it is my goal. (laughs) Um, I, I think that Anthony Bourdain obviously showed how much more we have in common than we do not, right? Because like foods from other countries or whatever it is are whatever. It's, it's all educational. And I think that fashion and style and, you know, can do that as well. I, I think that if you take a more anthropological look at fashion and the things and even beauty, I guess, it's more, there's more connect than there is sort of exclusivity. Um, You know, fashion as an industry, like a runway show or like haute couture or 
Gucci's latest collection. Yes, that's that separates us all more than it does brings us together because there's a price barrier. But but yeah, I think style can be very democratic. And um, I like to think of anything I create projects I embark on collaborations I do like kind of through the lens of how a food show is created. And like when I watch street food, you know, they really do such a beautiful job at like finding that woman in Thailand that is like, you know, has this incredible backstory and how she really had to like just literally start cooking to support her entire family. And with like, it's so simple. It's like literally one pan some local prawns and like a basket of vegetables. And there's just this like beauty and the simplicity of literally creating something from something so simple and humble and it being regarded as really like a high level cuisine or what people actually want to eat. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um, there's like no frills you're sitting on a milk crate or not or whatever it is and I just think that like I don't know I like seeing like all the stuff stripped away and just seeing the person's story of why they started the, the stall and purely usually out of survival and yeah I just think that I just love the way it's all shot and how they really get to the root of why that food why that stall even like appeared more than all like how the you know like a recipe basically because like I don't relate to that because I don't cook but yeah so that that's my obsession with food shows and it's what I prefer to watch above anything and I kind of always have them on and like a rainy day with great British baking show on is legit my ideal afternoon same same okay what is it it's like that show really took it back to basics. I mean, it's literally in a tent, in a field. That to me is like, who said that? They're like, okay, we're going to put it, we're not going to be in a kitchen. We're going to be in a tent in the countryside and build out the whole thing and have all these home cooks just make like traditional European pastries and cakes. It's so, like every time Mary says the word sponge, I just like, everything is better in the world. Do you know <laughs> yes like a victoria sponge i just (laughs) i will never fucking make a victoria sponge but like i'm obsessed with the idea of it Um, and i i think the you know the parallels between what we were talking about and when we were talking about quadrophenia and um all these food shows are are there and and the parallels between food and fashion Mm -hmm. that if you look at these things through a kind of broader lens, a, a macro version of, of what's going on, all of it can be elitist. You know, there are Michelin-starred restaurants sure. where there, you know, uh, there are TV shows about Michelin-starred restaurants sure. that the plates are works of art, um, mm-hmm. you know, that the access to that food is so limited. Mm-hmm. And in the same way with fashion, it's, as you were saying, with uh, high-end brands mm-hmm. whatever uh, Gucci or um uh any any of those high end fashion houses yeah. those are exclusive and not available to most people mm-hmm. but right. there's also the flip side of that you know the first episode of this podcast i talked to somebody about fruits magazine and about mm-hmm. the genesis of the harajuku style mm-hmm. and 
the idea that people took bits and pieces from charity shops, cut them up, mm-hmm. mixed and matched them, built their own outfits, mm-hmm. and developed this uh, th- this style of their own mm-hmm. um, from what was available to them. And it wasn't yeah. necessarily about what you could afford. It was about yeah. how creative you were and how much of yourself you could put oh. into what you were wearing. And, you know, I, th- I think it's the same with, with both of them, that it's, mm-hmm. it's this idea of developing this subculture that's particular to yourself, maybe to you and your friends or your family, and owning that part of the world, whether it's what you're wearing, whether it's the food that you prepare. And, you know, obviously food is also about sustainable sustainability and about, or, um, you know, about uh, sustenance and, and making sure that people can stay alive, um, uh, which, which is not quite the same with fashion. Not quite but, the same. Um, you know, uh, fashion is still about identity and it is a big part of who people are and how they express that to the world. Um, So I want you to do a a fashion show where you travel around the world and explore fashion subcultures. From Uh, your lips to God's ears, Adamans, literally like, um, that's another one I'm throwing down here on your show. Like everyone heard it here first. Um, (laughs) I've been, I've been shopping that one around town for years, but it's, Yeah, I think like part of basically what I said before is actually that a lot of meetings I'm in as far as development meetings and all that, not to talk all business, Hollywood business over here, but like, you know, is that the reality of it is that it's not as democratic, fashion is not as democratic as food and completely like to your point, it doesn't, you could live wearing the same clothes the rest of your life, but you obviously have to eat like nutrition, you know nutritious food, varied food groups and stuff for the rest of your life. So, but yeah, but I really do, I do see, you know, a need for, a need, but I think that it's interesting. I, I don't think I'm the only person interested in sort of the the origins of style yeah. and, and how it speaks to people's lives and identities and struggles and yeah. Yeah, and I guess... I- I think the parallel is also that people need to eat, but not everybody cares about what they're eating. People sometimes just want to eat to survive and they don't really enjoy food. And there are some people who absolutely love it and will spend, you know, their entire salary on going to the best restaurants and exploring. And it's the same kind of thing for fashion that they're, you know, everybody needs to wear clothes uh, Mm. for for the most part. And um, (laughs) whether people care about the clothes they're wearing or whether it's just like, I have to put something on and whatever I have is fine. And I'll just wear like a tracksuit my entire Mm. life. Then Mm -hmm. that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end is like fully spending hours every day planning out what your outfits are going to be and cultivating a really individual look that you Mm -hmm. want to be noticed Mm -hmm. uh, wearing. Yeah. No, I think that, yeah, solid parallels. So um, I think I I challenge everybody to, uh, to watch a food show, think about fashion and how it sort of relates to their, (laughs) to their own life as far as identity goes. And so yeah, I think, you know, it, it goes deeper than just trends. And, and honestly, like, 
of course, earlier on in my career, I wrote a lot of stories about trends. And I think thankfully fashion, and I, I mean, even kind of more recently, but thankfully fashion is moving in a way where there's it's way less about trends. There's no rules. It's all about personal style. But I'd also argue that we don't have that many subcultures anymore. Like there's just such a blurring of like, not where we could talk about punks and mods and um, rockers and skaters and surfers. I mean, kind of, but I guess I'm, I'm, I guess I'm speculating that because the world we're so global now and with technology and, and social media, like it doesn't define style isn't really defined about like by where you live. Cause you can very easily see what the cool girl in Copenhagen's wearing and just copy her. And do you know what I mean? Like it's all just this like big melting pot more than ever now. So, and that was, you know, uh, talking about fruits magazine, that it was this zine that was <laughs> documenting, uh, the Harajuku, scene uh, street fashion scene and mm-hmm. the guy who did it i can't remember his name right now sorry everybody uh listen to the first episode yay uh, <laughs> go back to episode he, yes he stopped doing it because he was saying like there's you know it's all of the um international fashionista fashionistas had moved into the neighborhood and were had taken yeah. it over and it was diluted mm-hmm. and all of the kids who had been like parading around those streets using them as their catwalk were just going on Instagram and showing it to the entire world instead of to a handful of people. But I still say this is why the deal that we've just brokered for you to have this show where you uh, explore fashion (laughs) subcultures is so important is because I really need you to go out and find the subcultures that do still exist and uh, show them to the world. So um, correct. I think it's like it is we're we're, like there's going to be there's so many kids I guess we can say kids now right because we're Mm -hmm. of age where we're kids (laughs) um we don't know what a mod is do you know what I mean like the I don't know I mean maybe they don't need to know but I think they do and I think that the the there's almost like a time capsule with subcultures that needs to be surfaced again yeah I I accept that challenge and I'll call my agent right after we hang up on this call yeah and just you know it's a done deal like you don't need to worry because okay good as long as I've said it out loud, then it's, it's, yeah, it's fine. Done. Done. You'll do, yeah, we'll do our next podcast from the road, from wherever, whatever subculture location. Yeah. Um, uh, so clunky, uh, transition number two. Yeah. Um, should we talk a little bit about Mark Bradford? Let's talk about Mark Bradford. I love him. I think he Mm. is. He's obviously local to Los Angeles. I think his work is tremendous. The style, the scale, he is larger than life. He's like six foot seven. I mean, just everything is is really tremendous. And I love the the texture. I basically love the intricacy of everything he does. And yeah, I guess the main word there would be texture. I love the layers and how he manages to continue such intricate technique and and how he works on, again, such a generally massive scale. And I I mean, his work is around Los Angeles a lot. So maybe I'm just seeing it more than I might other people's, but it's the texture. It's the like, I like things aesthetically that have a lot of layers and maybe as pretentious as this sounds, it's like, I like concepts in general with a lot of texture and layers and fashion as a very traditionally superficial concept and industry, which I just happen to be very interested in from a very early age and always plan to work in it in, in, 
in some way. I just personally need more than what it can give me at, at surface, val- surface value, right? So, mm-hmm. so with Mark Bradford's work, it's just, I can literally walk from one end to the other, like at the Broad here in Los Angeles, and just kind of get lost in all of the details and layers and shapes and just everything that's going on that's like sort of everything and nothing at all. Do you know what I mean? It's like every, it's sort of like this meditative, like you just kind of like keep, keep looking and keep staring. And, and it's just the texture to me is just like really, really wonderful. And someday when I can buy a piece for 60 million, I'll stare at it all day long. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So he's just like an, an artist, uh, that I became aware of maybe four or five years ago or so. And he was at an event actually being honored somewhere where I was and was like, I think I've, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, no, I know. But I wasn't as familiar with his work. And then even though he was like crazy famous, I was just like late to the party. And uh, yeah, ever since then have just been a really big, big fan of his. And um, yeah, I think that he can use color in a way that is not like crazy in your face. It's complicated, but simple at the same time. It kind of looks like a map and geography and travel. And I don't know, it can, it can, it's like a new, it's like, you're like looking at new worlds every time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this could be, this could be a whole different like surface of a planet. And this could be a whole subway system. And I don't know, there's, it's, it, it evokes this sense of like other place as well, because it looks sort of mapish to me at least. So yeah, I think that there's 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 a lot going on there, but yeah, I, I there's not one piece in particular that I actually I just kind of like his style and aesthetic in general. Yeah. And I think tying it in with everything else that we've been talking about, uh, mm-hmm. with you know, a lot of his work is abstract. With mm-hmm. abstract paintings and sculpture, there's kind of different levels of viewing, again, looking at it from a, a broader perspective and just experiencing experiencing the work without knowing what it means or what the the background of Mm -hmm. of the creation was Mm -hmm. and seeing something that's like yeah it looks like it could be a map or something that's just really chunky layers of paint that are kind of Mm -hmm. uh you know this almost like a a sculpture on a canvas Mm -hmm. um but then learning you know he's a, he a lot of his work is really political and the 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 meaning behind it when you know like the the piece that he um did about the survivors of hurricane katrina there there, mm-hmm. there are things like that that are mm-hmm. there's a lot there's literal layers to the paint but there's also layers you know figurative layers in the work right. as well right. um, and uh yeah being able to kind of enjoy art on looking at it at face value and saying this is beautiful Mm-hmm. Um, but then also having an artist who really cares about the meaning behind the work that he's creating um, yeah. and, uh, you know, fo- focusing on making his work, I- infusing his art with uh, politics as well as just the raw emotion of experiencing the beauty of it. Right. Yeah, 100%. And I think like like we were saying before about like, everything being more transparent now about who you support and how you support it, whether it's a company or a person or a brand or whatever it is and what you choose to buy. I was introduced to Mark Bradford because he was being honored 
as a charity for all his work in the community. So like, I, I don't just like his work. I, I like him. You know what I mean? Like I like, I like that he's creating programs for, for inner city children here in Los Angeles in the foster care system, particularly like in the Watts neighborhood. I mean, that's, these are areas that art, particularly fine art and, um, you know, on a global scale have not penetrated and, uh, and it's, it's just, I think, amazing when, you know, an artist takes the time, an artist who's gotten such, you know, global notoriety at this point can prioritize making sure that, like, that changes, basically, in the trajectory of, like, the art world, as it were. So I also like that very much about him because, I don't know, like, why not, you know? I think mm -hmm. that, that we're now all making more conscious choices about how we do things and who we not just give our money to, because I'm not giving my money to Mark Bradford just yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, just champion, I guess. So yeah. um, that just adds to his likability for me, him as a person. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, yeah, I mean, what, like you said, like, I mean, so much of the political, there's a lot of um, political statement that's imbued into his work. So it makes sense that he's of that mind outside of his work. So, yeah, yeah. texture, and layer, depth. It's all, it's the, it's the through line here, Adam. Yeah. And also, you know, the fine art world is an, another example of something that the, there's two ends of the spectrum. And on one end you have mm -hmm. really famous artists who sell works for $60 million. And the other end is just, you know, people who are just trying to get their work seen or, um, you know, are kind of struggling to, to, uh, make ends meet and, you know, have, having that artists who are at the top of the the food chain when it comes to the art world doing mm -hmm. work that talks about things that are not hi highlighting issues that are not elitist and also um as you said outside of his work doing uh, doing other things to help the community yeah. that he that he lives in and, and the communities nearby so it's pretty yeah. pretty good and in the same way that you know with with anthony bourdain that it's it's about exploring food all, all across the world uh, from all different perspectives and right. all different levels of um, all different means. Um, mm -hmm. The people who can, you know, make food with all the resources in the world and people who have absolutely nothing and right. saying that all of those, uh, all of that, the entire spectrum is valid. The entire spectrum okay. deserves attention and, and love. Right. Um, and, you know, the same thing works in the fashion world. The same thing works in the art world. There, we have developed a solid thesis. Um, my God. That's the treatment. We wrote it. That's yes. it. Done. Yeah. Thank you so much. That, yeah. um, that was a very productive 45 minutes. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm, You're really good. I'm in, I'm in awe of both of us, really. Yeah. You'll get an executive producer credit. Wonderful. Thank you. That's all I ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I feel enormously satisfied with this yeah. uh this was so much fun and uh i've had a wonderful time um so thank you so much this was so wonderful uh if people want to keep up with what you have coming up next and uh, know what's going on with you what is the best way to do that uh you can follow me on instagram at melissa magsaysay or my website melissamagsaysay.com wonderful easy peasy mm-hmm um, well, thanks again. So good to talk to you. Good to um, talk to you. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.
What a fucking legend, eh? Thank you again to my dear friend Melissa for chatting with me. Follow her on Instagram. She has a delightful online presence that will brighten up your day. Okay, ready for the recommendations? You better hold on tight, kids, because I've got a lot for you. Firstly, let's talk TV. The Outsider on HBO is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel, and it's fucking great. I'm a pretty huge Stephen King fan, or at least I have been. His later work hasn't hooked me as much. I liked The Outsider as a novel, but I wasn't bowled over by it. But this adaptation does a wonderful job of fleshing the story out, putting a little meat on the bones. Characters that are a little thinly sketched in the novel feel like real people in the TV series, and I think that's most apparent in the character Cynthia Erivo plays, a private investigator named Holly Gibney. In the book, she has a whole host of mental health issues that are conveyed to the reader through a lot of mental illness tropes. And I think that character, as she's written in the book, hits on one of Stephen King's biggest shortcomings. He's great at creating characters similar to himself, straight white men in particular. But he struggles with characters of other sexual orientations, genders, races, and with people who have mental illnesses and disabilities. But the character of Holly Gibney in the TV show is utterly fantastic and compelling. She's a fully realized person instead of a caricature. Cynthia Erivo's portrayal is a motherfucking revelation. Really, watch it. The other TV recommendation is High Maintenance, which just started its fourth season, also on HBO. I think it's a show that anyone can appreciate, but it's got a special resonance for me as a New Yorker. In a lot of ways, the show is a love letter to the city. It shows all the best and worst parts of living here in such a loving, kind, compassionate way. And because of that, it's an absolute joy to watch. Then I've got a music recommendation for you. There is a DJ duo called Chaos and the CBD. They're brothers from New Zealand, and they provide some of the best nights out around right now. They make great music themselves, but they also have impeccable taste when it comes to other people's music. And because of that, their sets are so much fun, and they always look like they're having a ball in the DJ booth. And their social media accounts are hilarious and silly and adorable, so check them out. And lastly, I went to the Museum of the Moving Image and finally saw the permanent Jim Henson exhibit there, and it's everything I could have hoped for. Tons of great stuff from every part of his career. It's a really comprehensive overview, as well as being tons of fun, so check that shit out. And that's it, dudes. That's all I've got. As always, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade and rate and review the show. And I'll be back with more next week. Sound like a deal? Great. Have a good one, folks. Until next time, bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.